If you're a regular Geeks Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 935 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to 1,000. And so I want to give a special thank you to the Mandelbrotian, who just gave us a five-star review. And here are some excerpts. It says, The last two Geeks Guide episodes were some of host David Barkerley's best interviews yet. Featuring Professor Jan Levin's enthusiasm for black holes and the many ideas for short stories they spawn, and longtime panel participant and fan favorite Aaron Lindsay on her newest novel. I've been waiting for that last interview, and it did not disappoint. For the Geek's Guide panel discussions, Curly has gathered an impressive cast of mostly recurring guests who enjoy opining on various themes in fiction or movies or TV series, etc. He leads each discussion on a specific topic, and they are a lot of fun, but especially whenever Tom Gerenser, Matt Kressel, and Andrea Kale appear together, which often results in comedy gold. If you're any bit of geek, you need this podcast in your week. So big thanks again to the Mandelbrotian for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 446 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is John Peterson. He's the co-author of the book Dungeons & Dragons Art and Arcana, which was a finalist for the Hugo Award, and his book Playing at the World is considered one of the most important books ever written about the history of tabletop games. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, The Elusive Shift, which explores how Dungeons & Dragons went from being called a war game upon its initial release to being called a role-playing game just a few years later. And now here's our interview with John Peterson. All right, so we're here with John Peterson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so back in episode 331, I spoke to Michael Whitwer about the book Art and Arcana, which you guys wrote with Sam Whitwer and Kyle Newman. And I want to pick up the story from there. So just what was that like for you when that book came out? I mean, that was a pretty incredible project. And I mean, you know, thanks so much to Michael for bringing me into this. And this is one of these things where it was kind of like Kyle's idea and Kyle sort of knew Sam and through Sam reached out to Mike and then Mike reached out to me. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, a bit of a game of telephone, but it was an amazing team that we assembled to do it. I mean, just Kyle's visual sensibilities, obviously, as a Hollywood film director and his ability to kind of look at the overall visual narrative flow of the book. You know, Mike's experience in doing narrative nonfiction and, you know, Sam's just immense love of the game. Like Sam is definitely the, you know, the drummer who's like making sure we keep to the beat of telling the story of how D&D is awesome. And then you got me. I'm just like some, you know, nerd who studies way too much about role playing games and stuff like that. So I could make pedantic corrections and definitely in in the the earliest years, uh, the part that I study the most. Um, probably make the the largest contribution, but I mean, what what not to say about it? It was a project where we had to scour the earth for like where all the original paintings were that you know graced all of the iconic original and advanced Dungeons and Dragons books, and you know get them photographed and um, just figure out the whole panoply of like licensed D and D things, anything that we could show a picture of that could like help tell the story of D&D um, for this amazing 40, 45, almost 50 now uh, year arc that it's been on. Um, we tried to find it and include it. So it was a blast to do. It was a very different kind of research than I'd done before. Yeah, and it was it was fun because when you guys were on tour, on the book tour, uh, I had dinner with you and, and Mike uh, in New York. 
And um, so just what was that tour like? Was that a, a pretty new experience for you or had you ever been on anything of that scale before? No, I'd never done something like that. I mean, we were at, you know, Pixar and, um, <laughs> you know, they, they were working on uh, Onward then, right? And so they, which has this huge kind of RPG component to it. And so it was really cool to talk to them and they were really engaged with us on it. You know, we were at uh, Lucasfilm, we were at Google um, and just a lot of great bookstores. We got to go to the Strand in New York and give a talk there and, you know, Powell's in Portland, Oregon, like, you know, definitely if you're into books and into the book scene and just into popular culture, uh, it was amazing. A little grueling, maybe we were, we were bouncing around a bit uh, for mm-hmm. that, that week around the country. And, um, you know, yeah, it, it felt like being in a band and, you know, <laughs> our friend, uh, Joe Manganello, of course, who wrote the forward for it in Arcana, knew has his company death saves that makes like heavy metal streetwear stuff. And so he, he made us a, a tour t-shirt that like listed all our tour dates on the back. And it was the, the art and arcana tour of horrors. (laughs) That's super cool. And so then when you got home from that, did you know what you were going to do to follow up with that? I mean, not immediately. I mean, obviously, you know, we started to get a sense that the book was going to catch on, that people were going to, were going to enjoy it, which was really cool. And, you know, once that became clear, of course, you know, we were talking to our publishers about, well, what should we do next? And um, 10 Speed Press, the division of Penguin Random House that we worked on, uh, Art and Arcana, um, you know, they actually publish a lot of cookbooks and not like little cookbooks, like super high profile, like, you know, Barefoot Contessa, you know, which is like number one bestsellers on uh, the New York Times list all the time. Um, and so it was really their idea that we do a cookbook next. And they, they socialized with wizards and they came back to us and said, Hey, you know, we want something that'll really be able to deliver some cool, you know, Dungeons and Dragons lore and flavor. And the good news was they also said, and by the way, we know how to make cookbooks. We know like (laughs) chefs who can sign recipes. We know people that can do amazing food photography and food preparation and plating. And like, so we, we kind of got the easy button on this one compared to like Art and Arcana, where we were really running around just anywhere we had to go to get um, this, this data to put into it. This was much more, you know, we, it provided what we call the head notes, right, for the recipes, um, just the, the things that give you the lore and the connection of this particular dish to a particular fantasy culture in the D&D multiverse, you know, focusing largely on, you know, Greyhawk, uh, the Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, Eberron. And so, you know, compared compared to the artwork in Art Arcana, this this was uh, easy street. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was a project. And when I heard about it, I was like, you know, I was grateful for the opportunity to do something that was not as serious and scholarly and sometimes ponderous as mm-hmm. you know most of the stuff that I write about. Yeah, and I don't know if we said the book is called Heroes Feast, if people want to check it out. I have a copy of it here. It's it's a really beautiful book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but um I was just reading up a little bit and there's uh can you tell me about orc bacon? That seems like an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. It is. So, you know, and this is a risk of having somebody like me involved in your project <laughs> is I, I do love these in-jokes and things like that. So this orc bacon thing, um, believe it or not, it's based on this time in the early 1980s when uh, TSR, who then published Dungeons and Dragons, they were licensing to like everybody, right? And they decided to actually license to um, Oscar Mayer, yeah, the, the, you know, the, as in Oscar Mayer wieners, right? <laughs> so they, they let them produce D and D branded meat products. Um, this is only for the European audience, but, um, so these, these were available in Spain mostly. 
And, you know, the, there, this included bacon. There was like an orc, there was this, you know, Dungeons and Dragons branded bacon <laughs> that they sold there. And so, yeah, internally, TSR staffers used to call that orc bacon. And we actually, when there's a license list of theirs that goes with the 20th anniversary kind of internal document uh, within TSR, people, um, you know, kind of reminiscing on the long path that had led them to the success that they had uh, 20 years into the D&D brand that actually listed it as Orc Bacon. And so I was like, okay, we've got to have Orc Bacon. There's no <laughs> way we're not going to have Orc Bacon in this book. <laughs> we'll find a way to do it. Did you have any sense of whether people in Spain were more likely to buy D&D branded bacon? Like, was that a commercial success? I have no idea. I mean, I, honestly, I, I, a lot of Europeans have reacted to this. I've even seen a, a few people just on social media who have said that they, they recalled it. And there are pictures, like you can find ads for this whole slew of different meat products of, you know, hot dogs and stuff that Oscar Mayer was then selling for this. And so we know, we know it exists. I hope if anybody still has it, they're not going to eat it. Like, you know, <laughs> keep, keep it in the freezer. I'd love to see one for posterity, but please don't, don't try this. Well, you gotta, you gotta keep it in the thing. shrink wrap. Otherwise you can't sell it on eBay. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I have to be in a cryo chamber to get somebody on eBay, but, um, so yeah, I, I have no idea how well it did. A lot of these licensed products, they were, you know, uh, relatively marginal, right? I mean, there were beach towels, there were color forms, there were, you know, viewfinder slides, all these great things that like tap into 80s nostalgia for the kids that did grow up like in the 70s and remember the stuff from the 80s. Pretty much every you know, light bright sets, you know, anything that you could have branded D&D and gotten the license from, they did it then. Well, I haven't thought about light bright in a long time. Um, yeah, seriously. All right. But so let's talk about your new book, which I have read. It's called The Elusive Shift. So kind of what's the story about how the book came about? Yeah, The Elusive Shift, it's definitely, if you're used to reading things like Art and Arcana and Heroes Feast, The Elusive Shift is a very different sort of thing. Um, this is a book that's put out by MIT Press. And so this is pretty academic, pretty crunchy. You know, if you're not deeply interested in questions about kind of how the idea of having a role-playing game industry and kind of tradition of games took shape in the 1970s and the minutia of that, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as a stocking stuffer. I would not infuse <laughs> this on someone and be like, oh, here's some light reading you can bang out over the weekend. It's it's definitely a pretty crunchy book. But I mean, the, the subject of it really is kind of about the aftermath of when D&D was released. I I wrote a book uh, that came out in 2012 that's called Playing at the World, which is, you know, 400,000 words of detail about the invention of D&D and more of a, the, the context and intellectual history that kind of enabled D&D to come into being. And it, it really only follows D&D up until like 1976 or 1977, which is right around the time that this idea that there was such a thing as a genre of role-playing games had started to gel. Like, you know, when they published D&D originally in 1974, you know, they didn't market it as a role-playing game. Nobody was marketing things as role-playing games then. I mean, maybe in like industrial psychology or, you know, operations research in the military, people use that, that term occasionally. But it wasn't something that was like a hobby entertainment genre then. And, you know, by 1976, though, you start to see that label appearing on products you start to see people talking about an early um, game like Metamorphosis Alpha. This was a, a role-playing game that TSR put out in 1976 by Jim Ward that was probably their first product that really marketed itself. This isn't like a war game anymore. We used to make war games. Now this thing we're doing is different. It's a role-playing game. And 
1977, when the Holmes basic set, the first uh, boxed basic set of D&D came out, you know, role-playing game had gotten enough uh, currency that that's, that's what they called it there as well. And that's really where playing all the world runs out of steam. So this is, this is about the story of who the people were that picked up these games and saw this property of role-playing in them, how that label kind of first got attached and what people thought it meant. And, and maybe even more importantly, like, what would it be like to design a game that you were intending to be a role-playing game? What, what quality should it have? How do you encourage people to be in character? Or, or what things do you think about a system design could make people feel like they're, they're not in character? And, um, you know, the argument of the book is that by like 1980 or so, it's pretty, it pretty much gelled that there was this, this kind of messy process by which everybody kind of agreed, okay, there's this new thing and it's called role playing. And this, this is kind of how it's different. But the book is called The Elusive Shift because nailing down exactly what happened during that time and, and, you know, trying to find like the inflection point or something, it's really pretty tricky. It's, it's a, it was a messy period where nobody agreed on what it meant for something to be a role playing game. But at the end of it, everybody at least agreed, agreed there was such a thing as a role playing game. And that, um, that helped spawn this amazing, diverse industry of role playing games that we have today. Yeah. And so this discussion that you're talking about that was taking place in the 70s was was mostly playing out in these fanzines and, and also kind of in magazines like Dragon and, and White Dwarf. I was a pretty avid reader of uh, of Dragon for uh, for for a number of years, but I've never actually and I've I'd, I'd at least or I've at least heard of um, Alarms and Excursions, which is one of the big fanzines, but I've never actually uh, read a copy. Kind of um, how did you get interested in those fanzines and like how um how were you able to read them? Yeah, I mean, the fanzines are my lifeblood. So I've always been super interested in fanzines. Before there was an internet and people wanted to talk about games, there were fanzines. And when I say people, I don't mean kind of from the cathedral down, TSR wants to tell you about new releases and what Gary Gygax thinks about, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, like gamers wanted to just interact with other gamers and say, here's my ideas about how to do this, or here's what I think about that. The only the thing that's the equivalent of the internet forums and the Facebook groups and things like that we interact with today at the time were these zines. And so um, they're the primary uh, material that I study, that I work on, are gaming zines from the 60s and 70s. And Alarms and Excursions is by far the most important and influential of these for understanding this initial period. Um, it was the first zine that was published where really diff different people's voices started to talk about, well, this is my experience with the game. This is how I'm doing it. Like, how are you doing it? And it, you know, it started late, late in spring, early summer of 1975 and has actually appeared monthly, um, every month since it is, is still going today. Out of Los Angeles, right? It is. Yeah. Lee Gold is uh, the responsible party. And Lee is, uh, she's an amazing woman who I, I've been over to her house. I, I have some good anecdotes about that, but um, yeah, she started this as a, a splinter off of a group that was called the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society or LASFIS. And LASFIS had been running a weekly zine, literally made like every week, every time the LASFIS group met in Los Angeles, they would put out a zine like kind of fr from the meeting. And, um, you know, this, this, so this had now been into probably 2000, maybe a little more issues by the time that, um, alarms and excursions kind of split off from it. But, you know, Alarms is a monthly and the basic idea behind zines that are structured this way, we call them APAs, amateur press associations, is that everybody can kind of send in their own section, almost like maybe your own forum post on a forum that, you know, then it gets collated 
And all of those individual sections people sent in that get mailed to everyone who participated in it. You could also kind of subscribe if you weren't a participant, if you'd pay Lee, she would, she'd send you copies for it. Um, but, you know, it was really focused on that collaboration and that, um, this notion that like everybody's going to contribute something to the, to the discussion. And, um, like I said, the, the early discussions that emerged then in 1975 about how to approach D&D and really what it might be like to design whatever some people thought maybe D&D should have been, what kinds of rules it should have, and what this all had to do with role-playing. Like alarms is one of the main things to follow to understand uh, how that all went down in the 70s. Yeah, and it was really striking to me reading your book to see how much sort of – how much – bafflement there was over the concept of a role-playing game initially and just how how long it took and how many disagreements there were over just some of the basic stuff that we take for granted. So like there were arguments about whether players should be rolling dice at all or should the dungeon master just be rolling the dice because the players might learn things that they're not like if they roll a 20 and they miss then they know that there's magic involved or something that the character that they're playing shouldn't know things like that. And also I was really struck one of these um um uh, writers in a fan scene was arguing that he, he he said he just banned his players from ever speaking in the voice of the character because he didn't want them to identify with their characters too much. It's just so different than kind of what's what we think of um, RPGs today. It is. And actually, Lee, Lee Gold was one of the people who advocated for not having that strong a sense of identification because she felt that it, 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 it made people too... Um, uptight about what was happening in the game, right? Like if you, if you feel like this character is you and these things are happening to you, you know, she kind of urged people to speak in the third person, not even to speak in like the first person voice of your character for that reason. Now she would, she would, you know, I think her views about this been changed over time, but like a lot of people early on were concerned that the level of immersion that these games offered, you know, um, could lead to disputes and real um, emotional breakdowns right, from people. And there's plenty of evidence looking at these early accounts that sometimes it did. And, you know, th- this whole question of what it means to take on a character and play it is really a- what a lot of the elusive shift is about. And the degree to which the system of a game constrains what you do or determines what you do when you're um, playing a character versus kind of either your personal ingenuity, right? <laughs> as a, as a player, well, I, I think my character in this situation should do this, but my character's intelligence is very low. Does that mean that my character wouldn't think of that? And I should propose that my character not do it. That, that was an early litmus test that people proposed for whether what you were doing was really role playing, right? Um, because they, they kind of viewed, at least some did, and like, it was enormously controversial and everybody seemed to have different views <laughs> about it. But, you know, some, some argued that that was like a line in the sand that if you weren't willing to, you know, restrict what you did to the way that the system characterized your character, you weren't really playing a role playing game. It was something else. I thought it was interesting in that discussion that all the conversation revolved around if my character's intelligence is lower than mine. Am I obliged to play stupider? And it never came up. Well, if my character's intelligence is much higher than mine, am am I is the DM obligated to say to me like, no, sorry, Joe, you're way too dumb. <laughs> Your character would never do something as dumb as what you just suggested. <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of that. I think you do see a bit of that. Um, you do see the notion that I think even there's another place I I think I chalk it up to Lee Gold, if I recall, this notion that. Um, they used the term calling at the time, and this is based on this idea that there was a caller 
which may not be familiar to anybody who reads RPGs today, but was kind of important in the first couple of years of after D&D came out, because D&D had this notion that there was a, a player who was kind of a privileged player who would call for the party. It was kind of this single voice that was talking to the, the dungeon master, to the referee, saying, okay, this is what we all do. And, you know, the, the idea of whether you call should be able to be overridden by the referee, because the referee says, well, you just wouldn't do that based on who this particular character is. Um, that, that's certainly something that people very early on latched onto. And I think it's probably a rule that was, you know, uh, honored more in, in the breach than the observance. <laughs> I mean, the, the original D&D rules, they weren't super specific and they weren't really clear about it. The, like the only place that they bring this up that, um, you know, you really see a lot of trace of is with, is with intelligence in the original D&D rules where it does say intelligence may determine whether the referee would, you know, allow you to do the action that you're describing for, you know, this particular character. And it's, and it was just these one-off kind of oblique statements buried in the 1974 D&D rules that people looked at and kind of magnified and said, well, okay, what are the implications of this? Like, what, what does this mean for the way that we should approach this game? And, Interestingly, that quickly transposes into, can we do better? Hmm. Right? Like, um, you know, a good example of that with abilities is, you know, the, the drive that sort of appear pretty early on for people to want to have different abilities for their characters than dice would just randomly generate, right? Who wanted more control over what kind of character they could play. And when you look at a game like uh, Chivalry and Sorcery, which is an early competing RPG, that, that's one that definitely does encourage you, if you have a low intelligence, to behave like an idiot and says, you know, it's fun, right? Or if you have a low dexterity and you're a thief, that you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be sad about that, right? You should um, you play it up because it's entertaining, it's comic and so on. But pretty quickly, people push back and we're like, well, I, I want to have more agency as a player in determining what kind of character I want to take on. This is more a role that I am curating for myself and inventing for myself instead of something that you're imposing on me. And, you know, from that, you start to see instead of rolling for abilities, things like point buy systems, where instead you, you kind of make it a de decisions about how you're going to allocate uh, your ability points. And thus, if you want to play an idiotic thief, it's, it's your decision to be playing an idiotic thief. And you, you feel that kind of agency to it. And definitely a lot of uh, chapter three of Lucif Shift is about precisely this this as it plays out across a couple different areas in early RPG system design. Yeah, and it seems like this is the big argument that goes on over hundreds of these zines is based because Dungeons and Dragons kind of comes out of this wargaming um, subculture, and then it attracts a lot of its early players from fantasy and science fiction fandom. And so there's this sort of conflict between is this more of a game where you're trying to succeed in these quests, or is it more of a uh, sort of a dramatic exercise where you're trying to really get into character and, and play your character. And you just see that argument in various forms recur over and over and over and over again. And there seems to be sort of this feeling that new players were more drawn to winning and experienced players were more drawn to, you know, getting into character. And I've been very, very obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons for a long time, and I've never had the opportunity to play it too much. I mean, I've played maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 times in my whole life. And um, I, I would say I'm, st I'm still maybe still at that phase where I want to have adventures and I'm not um, so interested in, you know, acting like a character. Um, so I was feeling like, you know, I don't know. I, I was feeling like, like maybe uh, not as uh, sophisticated 
you know, uh, reading some of these arguments, but, but that's kind of where I am is I'm, I'm still in the, you know, kill the monsters, get the treasure. Like even just that would be a, a blast for me. Yeah. And I mean, look, uh, there's, there's games out there like Diablo, right? Which are skinned and perfected to, you know, go down to the dungeons, kill monsters, come back with, uh, with gold and stuff. And these games are enormously popular, right? Um, and, you know, take, take your pick of any CRPG, like any tentpole CRPG. Um, dungeoneering is such a huge component of them and that kind of search for power. It's something that's like compelling to us. And, I mean, I, I, I always take heart when I look at, and this gets more towards the end of the elusive shift, you know, somebody like Glenn Blacko, who, you know, was the, the person who really created the first player, um, typologies where he said, well, okay, some, some kinds of players want to play this way. Some kind of players want to play this way. He created the one that was in any way the most popular of the 1980s where, you know, some players came in, as he said, to do power gaming, right? To just get more powerful. Other, other players went in for role playing. They wanted to have this experience of like, being in character and this kind of more acting and theatrical dimension, whereas others wanted to do wargaming to experience this, this simulation, right, of what what this world would be like that it obeys these logical rules and has these interesting tactical situations that you try to resolve. But even Glenn, you know, with his perspective on these typologies, he understood that power gaming even it appealed to him, right? Like he wants a game where there's a certain amount of, yeah, you're going to go up and experience your character has an arc. Um, and that arc of kind of rags to riches, right? And it's this, 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 uh, I'm playing at the world, you know, I, I called it a, you know, a kind of capitalist fantasy, right? Of like <laughs> endlessly accumulating treasure or things like that. Um, maybe a self-improvement fantasy, you know, if you could just keep working out like every day, then you'd be, you know, Schwarzenegger <laughs> or something like that, right? Um, this, this idea that, that practice would yield such easy returns. It is a huge part of the, um, the appeal of games that are in the tradition of Dungeons and Dragons. And, um, you know, people certainly felt that if you removed that element, it would lessen the market for it in, in a variety of ways. And so you see a lot of people, again, trying to strike a balance, trying to say like, okay, how much role-playing do you want? How much kind of tactical adventure do you want? How much, you know, becoming a super person do you want? How much storytelling, right? How much do you want this to be part of this overarching narrative where the, the referee or dungeon master has this elaborate world situation and is constantly throwing you curveballs you're supposed to react to that drive forward this incredible epic adventure? Um, you, you know, his argument was always you got to find the, the balances of that that appeal to you and the people around your table. And it's that customizability it's that artisanal you know capability that's built into D to kind of let the people sitting down around the table hash out how many of those elements they want and at what degree and it even though they're in attention with each other to kind of um find what works for you that has made it just such an transformative experience for myself and so many other people that grew up with it yeah and in blackout's typology the things are role-playing wargaming power gaming and storytelling and I would say if you're drawing a distinction between wargaming and power gaming, I'd be more in the wargaming section where, I, you know, it's not like I'll die if I don't get a million gold pieces, but it's more about, you know, can I outwit the traps? Can I pick right. the right combat strategies to survive? That kind of stuff. Yeah. And some people actually propose that there should be another typology for, for puzzle solving, uh, precisely for, you know, people who love these elaborate contraptions that they need <laughs> to figure out how to get through this temple by removing this jewel from this statue's eye and putting it in this other statue's eye or whatever. Um, every, everybody was always playing with those categories the same way everyone was always hacking D&D. &D. Everyone was always just trying to get what you wanted out of it. And it's just, 
as a tool for self-expression and for generating experiences you want to have. Uh, D&D and the games in this early tradition, you know, they, they really did just unlock something, this incredible creativity and this, this new experience. You hear, hear, hear early critics, you know, not just kids and fanzines, but, you know, John Freeman, who wrote for Games Magazine and wrote, you know, um, mainstream books about this saying that, you know, D&D might turn out to be like the most, one of the most important, like, you know, uh, discoveries of your life. Uh, when when you just come into contact with just just what this has to offer as an experience, well, right. And as the sort of years go by, you see um, a lot of critics becoming more dismissive of Dungeon Cross. But I thought it was really interesting. At one point, um, one of the writers is saying, like, "No, this is really tapping into deep, like Jungian archetype kind of stuff—the mm-hmm. descent into the underworld. That there's something that really resonates with people. There's a reason this is popular. This idea of going down into the earth and facing some challenge and emerging." triumphant yeah i'm fascinated by that that guy i'm kind of i'm, I'm curious honestly so this book isn't out yet it'll for the time we're recording this anyway it'll be out next week um i'm curious what people make of my um my account of bachman i find him a fascinating figure and he he comes up in a chapter that kind of is a bit of a survey of all the different ways people tried to position what these new role-playing games meant and there are people who said well this is an emerging art form this is you know, performative art. It's improvisational theater. It's something that's being created in our lifetime. It's you know profoundly exciting to see to be part of an, a new art form coming together. And then there were people who were like you know Gary Gygax saying, "No, this is what it's really just a game. You know, <laughs> this is just just a diversion, simple diversion, beer and pretzels. You know, don't get carried away. Like none of this magic stuff or whatever is real." And other people who compared it to psychodramas, you know, and certainly role playing does have historically connections to, to psychotherapy and things like it. Um, and there are people then who would position that more. Well, it's it's like a tool through which you can explore morality and yourself, and you know, things like that. But then this guy Bachman came along and was like. Nah, I think you're all wrong, actually. I think this is a game about giving you access to the supernatural. And like, you know, we, at a time, by the way, when you, this satanic panic thing we always talk about was kind of starting to blossom a bit, you know, he was very much engaged with the possibilities of, you know, experiencing the hero's journey, like straight out of Campbell, yes, and straight out of Jung, um, that were built into this. And he went farther than merely speculating about, you know, based on his reading of Eliada and, you know, think, authors like that. Um, that, you know, you could create a system that would kind of steer people in a way that follows the hero's journey. Right. And a part of that is, as you said, the, the descent into the underworld, you know, leaving the home area and like going out to a, a place of adventure where you'll en- encounter and eventually overcome these things and, and then return ultimately to a renewed and refreshed world. Um, you don't see people talking about war games that way. Right. When they talk about the, the elusive shift that there was this transition that happened, like, you know, you, you don't see people, uh, looking at, you know, a war game and claiming that it gives you access to the realm of fairy, which is literally <laughs> what this guy argued. Um, so he, he fascinates me because I mean, it, it's such an esoteric, um, way to think about it. But at the same time, the fact that he had a whole system designed around it that he thought could really steer people into that path. Uh, it just fascinates me as an effort. Yeah. Well, and you used the word psychodrama. And could you talk more about what that means? Because I thought that was interesting because, yeah, like so much of the commentary is assuming that the the highest form of role playing is to get into a character. And th- this guy was saying or this this writer was saying, if you um, if you're playing Conan the Barbarian, that's actually less 
meaningful than if you're playing yourself and learning things about yourself in the course of play. Definitely. And I mean, so this goes back, there's this guy Moreno who really coined the term role-playing game, who interestingly had kind of a double background. He was involved in psychotherapy and in Europe, and then also in improvisational theater. And there, there are a bunch of literary sources that he drew on, which I don't actually go into too much in The Elusive Shift. There's a famous uh, uh, Goethe piece that that uh, he, he was imitating in particular about a person who goes insane and then to treat this person, the, um, the doctors create this elaborate acted out fantasy to try to, you know, Quixote like make him think that, um, you know, he, he could navigate these problems, this, these, this insane fantasy world, um, through this, this, uh, huge kind of improvisational psychodrama. So psychodrama is a huge component of it. And, you know, what, one of my favorite, um, stories about this is one that Larry Dottilio tells where he talks about running D&D for some kids at a convention, including this this young player who was a paladin. And, you know, at one point in Dottilio's dungeon, there, there's a brothel, effectively. And the, the paladin kind of asks him, well, is it lawful for me? Is it lawful good for me to take advantage of this? Like, is, is sex bad? And Dottilio, you know, who's older and is running for these teenagers, is really just taken aback by the responsibility he's just been given. To kind of tell this kid, well, is, is sex in this context not good? And, you know, the best he can really do is to kind of put it, put it back to the kid and say, you know, I, I personally don't think sex is bad, but I mean, this is really, you know, it's a, it's a choice that, that people, people differ on and you kind of have to figure that out for yourself. And the, the way that our characters and our, ourselves as players bleed together. Um, is certainly a major theme, the elusive shift, the way people tried to attack that. And then contemporary RPG theory, this is now a subject that's way studied academically, more than the kind of infancy of it I talk about in the 1970s. There is a lot of literature about this, about really what the relationship is between, say, conflict you might have, um, you know, your character might with another character in a LARP, say, versus what, what really we feel of that as people and how, how much that kind of bleeds through into our relationships with others or, and, you know, these are huge, complicated questions. And I think the, the elusive shift is really trying to show they've always been with us, that people saw these things just from the moment d came out. Um, and, and, you know, there, there aren't easy answers to a lot of these questions. And I think still today, people who are designing RPGs are experimenting with the right way to position these things, the right way to talk about kind of what, what these games mean to us and how best to approach them. And I guess uh, the objective of the elusive shift is in some ways just to show how these tensions were built in to role-playing games from the start. And um, they probably won't ever admit of any satisfactory definitive solution that'll work, work for everyone because everyone comes to it with kind of different incentives, different goals, different things they want. Well, right. Because my experience, you know, as a teenager, reading the Dungeons and Dragons rule books, because, you know, I had like 20 different books or something. And I was just kind of like, how can anyone memorize all these rules and apply them consistently? And, you know, and 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 especially reading these fanzines, it seems like nobody really did. I mean, did, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, even I mean, there's this amazing part. I wonder if I have, I have a note about Gary Gygax. Um uh, I don't know where it is, but he's, he's at a, there's, there's an anecdote where he's at a convention and he just says sort of offhandedly like, Oh, I only roll the dice for the, 
for the sound that it makes. And then I just make up what happens and the room just yeah. goes dead silent. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to remember, this is, this is a guy who since, you know, 1978 or 1979, it, when the advanced Dungeons and Dragons came out, was just endlessly thumping this party line that no, there's one way to do AD&D, the original D&D game, he admits it was a mess, right? We we left everything open to interpretation. We gave referees total latitude to uh, change the rules, groups total latitude to change the rules. Um, but AD&D isn't supposed to be like that. We've thought it all through. We've written much thicker books, much you know, smaller font. They're bigger. Like anything you need to do, you're going to be able to find it. Yet at the same time, when you really you know, look in the, the dusty corners of those books, you find a lot of escape valves. You find a lot of places where Gygax is like, actually, you know, if you roll the dice and like what it turns out, the dice tell you would happen isn't the way you want the game to go. Eh, you can ignore it, you know, just just kind of say something else that happened. And y- you hear him express these sentiments and why it's so shocking, why you, why you couldn't hear a pin drop in the room after that, uh, that, that uh, uh, anecdote you're just telling, which is at a, a British convention, you know, was because people just couldn't imagine based on his public statements about this, about how necessary it was to adhere exactly to the letter of, of AD&D, that of course, Gary Gygax would be like, yeah, I don't really do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it, it seems like, yeah, that the role-playing games are kind of a fantasy, right? Like even, even not, like obviously they take place in like, there's like dragons and wizards and stuff, but it's just like this fantasy of a game where you can do anything but it's not just playing make-believe, playing pretend like a kid would, that there's rules for this, you know. And it seems like something like that can't really exist. And so much of the discussion in, in your book is, is about this question of, you know, how do you have a game where you can do anything and have rules that are finite, you know, and, and that sort of right. irreconcilable conflict? It is. And, you know, it's also about kind of the purpose of those rules at all. And like, you know, because I think they do have a purpose. It's maybe not the one that you'd think reading a rule book, but I think the rules help players to understand that there is there are physical laws that are not arbitrary that govern the world. And there's part, I think part of the experience of getting immersed in D&D is believing that, even if it's totally untrue, <laughs> even if in fact the referee is doing complete freeform resolution, right? And is just kind of making up whatever the answer is going to be. You know, what, what you see um, as a player is just, well, I propose to do this action. We talk a lot about something called statements of intention, right? Where you say, well, my character is going to try to do this. And the referee says, okay, here are the results. Really, the feedback you get are the results. Like you may not ever see a die roll that was conducted. Maybe a die roll wasn't conducted. You, you may not know why when you go to try that door, you know, the DM says it doesn't open. And that, you know, you know, I, I, there's a, a uh, joke in Elusive Shift where I talk about how, you know, there, the, there's this product called a DM screen, right? Which is a physical barrier that you put, um, you know, between yourself as a referee and the players. And this, this physical barrier exists so they can't see your maps and, or your die rolls behind it and things like it. But the dialogue, the conversation was always before there was any physical DM screen. It always shielded the players from understanding why it was that things didn't happen. And like the, the, the reductive property of that really does, it led a lot of people to make skeptical arguments about the value of having any system at all. But I think it's much more that you need to believe that the system is there in order for the fantasy to, you know, seem real to you. 
the more you believe that there is a deterministic world that is kind of you know responsible for assembling the things that that uh, the, the referee is describing to you that there there there's some um, nailed down model. It 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 helps you to um, not always be second guessing, not always be um, unsure why events happen because you 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 feel you experience it the same way you experience a real world where there are physical laws and physical rules that we're just kind of our brains are accustomed to being there and you know bumping up against something that feels just like that regardless of whether it's total paper mache or an extremely well thought out system just bumping up against something that feels like that is enough for us to believe in the fantasy yeah i mean when i was in um before i left new york uh i was in a dnt group there and it was it was really fun we would meet up maybe once a month at this um, sort of beer garden place and play but i sort of like i knew for a fact that dm wasn't going to let any of our characters die because we had put like mm. so much work into the characters it, like, it would be such a nightmare if one of them died like oh what you're just going to like re-roll new like you would I, I couldn't believe that he would do that and it would be like such a nightmare if he did but then it's kind of like well wait what's the point of any of these fights right. at all um and i actually liked there was an idea where um one of these people said that when a character died that they had to sort of sacrifice their most powerful magic item to resurrect them i actually and i actually liked that as a uh you know that that sort of hurts enough to make it meaningful and you know you're never going to get that same exact item again even if you might get something you know equivalently powerful um, but then it's not like, oh, you have to like, un it doesn't undo all this storytelling work that you've done over months, you know? Yeah, that that's uh, Ed Symbolist who designed Chivalry and Sorcery that was writing about that. And Ed was a big believer in Kismet, as he called it. He has these two Kismet essays that I talk about a lot, um, where Kismet's just, you know, fate, right? And he, he believed that it's the job of the the dungeon master to help create this this story and to steer characters towards what the characters want their destinies to be, right? But that you know because of that, whenever anything happened that would stop that story, he argued, well, don't don't stop the story. Just just you know make them fail in such a way that they feel that they failed, but it, that's not going to make it so the story resolution they're trying to reach isn't going to happen. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of people who design games today, uh, RPGs in the indie community, you know, look for this similar property they call Fail Forward. And, you know, I'm fascinated by how Ed understood the problem. He didn't light on exactly the same solution that people later lighted upon. But what impressed me so much looking at this early literature is how well all the chafing points were understood like within just a couple of years of these games coming out. And there's like a notion, we got to do something to fix this, to make it work in a way that for those people who want that storytelling, right, experience going back to the blackout categories or the role-playing experience. If I can't let my character die, I've got too much invested. And, you know, that Duke still is on the run and we've, we've got to get back <laughs> the ring from him. Um, you know, that, uh, that tension, I guess, has um, turned out to be so productive in rule design in the years since the 1970s. In the 70s, they understood the problems better than they probably understood the solutions. I'll put it that way. Well, because I was not familiar with these games you reference, Flash Gordon and um, Top Secret, but both of them have this kind of schematic plot map for the story. So yeah. in, the, in the Secret Agent game, you know, and it follows the formula of a, a spy thriller where, you know, it's like, the characters are going to get, and this is a flow chart, right? Where it's like the characters get attacked and they can either be captured or escape. And if they're captured, then they're like left in some, uh, you know, diabolical contraption or like things like that, where it's right, not a right. geographical map, but it's a, a story map. Um, 
where, where you know, and I thought that was like a really interesting way of conceptualizing an RPG. Yeah, I know Merle Rasmussen, who designed Top Secret, I've been really fortunate to be able to work very closely with him, actually, because I, I think that game, although it's not as well known today, there is a version of it that's actually out, out still today that you can get. Um, it introduced a lot of really interesting innovations and that schematic map, it didn't actually make it into the designed game, but they ran it through the dragon. Um, around the time that the game came out to kind of explain how you could utilize that. But in draft versions of Top Secret, um, this really was kind of, you know, a, a path through the story. And because these are formulaic stories, this is when you talk about Flash Gordon as well. Flash Gordon stories are sur- super formulaic, right? <laughs> like you're Flash Gordon, you know, the Emperor Ming is a real problem. And you like, you need to raise some power and overthrow, you know, the overthrow Ming. And like, there, there's no other kind of story that you read in the, the Flash Gordon serials. And like, as a consequence of that, people started thinking about how do you design these games that are pegged very closely to the, the familiar physics of the story. And I talk about this a bit in the acknowledgements of, um, of Elusive Shift. Really, I caught this bug from a guy named Jonathan Tweet, who is an RPG designer who maybe is most known to D&D people for his role in designing third edition D&D. But he also designed an early amazing game called Ars Magica and that were called Over the Edge. He's kind of one of the people I really, I really geek out over. So like in 2013, I was over at Peter Atkinson's house in Seattle and he invited Jonathan over. It was the first time I'd ever met him to play some board games with us. And Jonathan was really the one who's like, oh, you're that guy who was playing the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of you. So, like, tell me, what do you think was the first game that tried not to simulate the physics of a world? Like, how do I hit this? How how much encumbrance is this or this do? Kind of a sandbox like that. But instead tried to simulate the course of a particular kind of narrative, particular kind of story. And so that was one of the things I was looking for from the start of this. And yes, Top Secret and, and Flash Gordon are very convenient things for me, me to be able to point to in my early conversations with Jonathan and say, well, have you, have you seen this? <laughs> this? This is stuff that seems to do precisely that. Yeah. Well, in this book, I mean, you pretty much keep yourself and your opinions completely out of this book. Do you have opinions about like what kind of um, RPG experience you prefer? I mean, uh, yeah, I, so I do keep my opinions out of my books uh, overall. That's that's pretty true. I, In part, I don't really think the story of the histories of the periods I study is about me. I wasn't there. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I was not a, a participant or a protagonist in this. And so I'm I'm really trying to tell as much as I can, um, you know, the story of the people who did do this. I mean, if you ask me what kind of games I play myself, I play heavily storytelling, RPG-driven games, long complicated, um, generally a bit horror infused. You can think I, I really cut my teeth on, you know, vampire, uh, vampire, the masquerade, the game, and then the, the LARPs from that. And then a bit of really hacked second ed D and D. And so, yeah, the kinds of games that my friends and I played when, when I was younger, uh, definitely trained me to look for, uh, intrigue, um, you know, kind of mystery, uh, horror elements, um, you know, I, I like DMs that uh, keep players definitely in a desperate situation. <laughs> There's a lot of urgency and um, m- maybe less of the dungeon crawling and things like it. But, you know, I, I play WoW, I play Diablo, I play, you know, Dragon Age and, you know, uh, Elder Scrolls and things like it. So I, I get plenty of dungeon crawling from uh, d- games that are designed particularly for that. I really want to get much more into the immersive 
experience of these stories, which for me, um, I mean, transform my life. I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about it. Uh, how, how so did they transform your life? Well, I mean, when you get deeply into these games, I mean, they, they change the way you think about everyday experience. I, I think in, in my own experience, I mean, um, when I played a lot of vampire, my, I had a friend, he and I used to walk around Boston in the wee hours and everything we saw, we just sorted into the world of darkness, right? Like any, any person we saw, we were speculating if they were a vampire, like what clan they were from, <laughs> any building we saw, we would be, you know, the, the Ventru obviously live here. If we saw a manhole, we'd talk about the Nosferatu. Like these are things that just started to pervade the way that we perceive reality. No, I don't, I don't mean that in some, um, you know, sense like the steam tunnel kid, right? We were <laughs> confused about whether these games were real or not, but they, they kind of form this um, conceptual dimension that helps you understand reality um, in a more interesting way. And I guess the experiences that I had at that time were very formative for me in the way I think about these games. But again, that doesn't mean that I, I don't see equal value in doing smash and grabs. I play a lot of convention games these days where it's very much, okay, you're dropped into a scenario and you know, you're a fighter. <laughs> what are you going to do? There's, you know, three orcs ahead of you and like, you know, kill. And certainly I know how to do that. I've studied these systems pretty well and I, I kill well. <laughs> um, it's just, if I were running the game, that's, that's not what I would be running. I mean, do you even have a lot of time to play games these days? I mean, like this book cites 57 zines in the um, appendix. Like it must have taken an enormous amount of time to to write this book. I mean, I started it in like 2015. And I guess it's, it's just out now at the end of 2020. But I mean, my process is, um, you know, I, I will sell no wine before it's time this as the old, I think, Gallo commercials used to say, <laughs> you know, the, these are things I work on as, as a hobby, really, as a something that um, through my own investigations as a collector, as a researcher, I'm you know constantly engaging with this material. And the things I write are just a side effect in a way of my own experience researching and trying to understand these games. And Elusive Shift is just a good example of something I could break off as a chunk that tells an interesting part of the story that's relatively self-contained and kind of has its own narrative and flow through it. But I mean, to me, these are just manifestations of the amount of time I invest into a just collecting, identifying what do I want to collect and collecting it. Um, and then B synthesizing all that and trying to think, well, what, you know, what can I learn from it? And, uh, and yeah, you know, I, I hope people enjoy reading things like it. I mean, it's like I said, this, this is a pretty crunchy book. Elusive Shift is, you know, compared to things I worked on like Art and Arcana and Heroes Beast, I'd say it's much less accessible. Um, it's, it's again, published by MIT Press. It's, it's certainly targeting more of the very, um, very hardcore audience that are into RPGs. If, if you, if you're designing RPGs, I think it, it's potentially of interest, but, um, probably not for casual readers. <laughs> One of these interviews I listened to with you, you said that you'll talk to a lot of academics and they'll say that they're that they're jealous of you that you can you know have such a singular focus on just the you know the facts of what happened historically that if you're in academia I guess there's more pressure to have some sort of ideological um filter for everything and that they that as an independent scholar you can just focus more on here's what the here's what historically happened. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a bit of that. Like, you know, there there isn't a lot of Marxism or, or anything <laughs> like that in, in Elusive Shift. 
Um, but I mean, you know, there certainly are working, especially with this period, you know, there, there are serious questions, social questions really about like who got to participate in these games about, you know, what, um, how white and how male and how middle class and homogenous the community was for the 1970s that approached these. And I certainly don't try to sweep those under the rug um, by, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, it's really difficult to actually doing what I do, which is largely working with documentary sources, right? Um, it can be hard to um, find more kind of inclusive um, examples of communities that were diverse in the 70s. I mean, this part of the problem is by the 80s and then certainly the 90s, the RPG community become very much more diverse. And, you know, today I, I'd say we're, we're, we've made real progress in that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not that I don't want to engage with some issues that maybe some people consider to be ideological, but it is, it's, it's unfortunately like a, um, again, a side effect of what I'm focusing on the period I am focusing on in this. Like, you know, if you wanted to write a book about, um, you know, things that undergraduates worked on at Princeton in the 1960s, um, you'd also, it would be hard to find voices that weren't, you know, white and male and things like that, just, just because of the, yeah, I don't think the university even admitted women as regular students till like 1969, right? Um, these were times that were very different from our times. And, um, that's a challenge for me. And it's, it's, it's always a disappointment to me, right? That I can't do better in that regard. Um, I, I should work on something else. If I worked on something else, I could do better. Well, I mean, the big sort of battle over inclusion that comes up in the elusive shift is the Munchkins versus the Grognards. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I was I, I went after the origins of terms like Munchkin and very similar things a lot. Um, ageism is certainly a huge dimension of how the shift, if you know, whatever we consider the shift to be, happened. Because when AD&D came out, there was, um, due to a variety of historical things, really, um, an influx of very young uh, new players who wanted to play D&D, who were um, really only knew it from the Dragon and from the AD&D books, and had seen, as I referred to earlier, kind of Gygax is saying, like, this is the one true way to do it, and would show up at game conventions or local game clubs at your friend's local game store, and you know, be facing these people who've been playing since 1975 who have a very different view of what it is to engage with Dungeons and Dragons than kind of just what was in some source books that came out in like 1978, 1979. And that conflict, um, it had a, a few ramifications, but one of which is that it really solidified this idea that there was an intellectual avant-garde of people that were interested in a deeper form of role playing that was a reaction against these these kids i think the the dictionary definition of of munchkin you see in the literature then is like under 16 but you know let's be fair by you know the early 1980s like you know uh, two-thirds of dnd product that was being purchased was being purchased for people with between the ages of 10 and 14 and so this really this demographic trended sharply lower from what used to be mostly college age players to something that's you know predominantly you know tweens right and yeah that that caused all kinds of uh tensions in the industry but the irony is of course those munchkins grew up and when those munchkins did grow up i mean people like jonathan tweet i just mentioned is a great example of this was a munchkin in that period was one of the kids that came in from that and you know as he 
grew up and got more sophisticated and started thinking more about these games, he had um, he found his way to alarms and excursions in the late 1980s and engaged in the discussions that were still going on there as they had been now for 15 years, perhaps. Um, and, you know, was always just trying to find the way to create the best spontaneous story you could if you put a group of people around the table. I know that um, the Dungeons and Dragons, or I've heard that it's selling better now than it ever has. And I'm just curious, do you have any sense of how many of the people playing it now are kind of people sort of middle-aged rediscovering their childhoods and how many, like how many 14-year-olds like Munchkins are, are picking up D&D now for the first time? Um, I mean, I, I don't know if I have those demographics really fresh in my mind, but my recollection is it is primarily younger people that are responsible for the, as you say, the unprecedented sales of the game that are out there now. Um, it isn't just a, a nostalgia thing. I mean, the numbers are so big, they wouldn't support it being a nostalgia yeah. thing. Um, you know, this is a lot of uh, teenagers, I'd say more late teens than early teens, though, you know, I, I would expect in the fullness of time that uh, Wizards will have products targeting any possible person <laughs> that wants to get engaged with with D&D. Um, and to me, it's great to see these people that have been turned on by like critical role, right, who have seen these things through YouTube, through Twitch, through social media, and have kind of come to, you know, be able to understand the game by watching people who who play it quite well, um, week after week, just unveiling these like deeper and deeper stories that drag you more and more in. And the ability, you know, back in the day in the 1970s, you didn't have something like that, right? There were, to learn, you'd have to go to a convention or, you know, play with an established group to kind of get a sense of what this game even really meant. And that now you can just watch it on YouTube and like, you know, get hooked on some of these story and then just get together with your friends and decide what kind of story do we want to have and use the 5e books to get you there. Um, that's really what's created this, this incredible moment that we have now for D&D. Yeah, that's great. I guess just uh, before we run out of time, I just wanted to mention a couple sort of interesting intersections between fantasy and science fiction literature and Dungeons and Dragons. So I didn't, I knew obviously that, um, H.G. Wells had been really pivotal in the formation of tabletop gaming with his, uh, his book, Little Wars. Um, but I didn't yeah. realize it, until I, I think I was just listening to an interview with you, but that Robert Louis Stevenson was also, you know, a major figure in, in the development of tabletop games. So that's a pretty interesting, you know, that they were both such major novelists and such major figures in tabletop gaming. Yeah, you'd think there must be some kind of connection here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's really fascinating. I mean, you know, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, obviously, throughout his life had health problems. And so in the early 1880s, he was holed up in Davos in Switzerland, um, so where I guess the air is good for you if you have respiratory problems. And he had a, a stepson. And kind of to get closer to his stepson, he was playing this this war game that he invented uh, with him. And although uh, Stevenson never published his rules, um, his stepson wrote this whole piece about it that you could read that kind of describes what what they were playing and how Stevenson integrated his stories. And he he would kind of create these characters of war correspondents who would be witnessing the the war that was going on in their tabletop and writing about it and. Wells was doing the same thing, right? When Wells wrote Little Wars, he has a whole narrative section of it where he talks about assuming this character. There's even almost like a Jekyll and Hyde moment in the way that uh, Wells describes himself transforming from this, you know, academic sort of guy, right? Into someone with a dueling scar who has been, you know, veteran of many, many battles and 
Um, and he really wants to get into the character, at least for the purposes of explaining how the game works. And this connection just goes on and on. I and mean, we can point to people like Fritz Leiber, who is uh, pretty well known for having created um, Fafford the Grey Mauser. Um, you know, Fritz Leiber designed a war game based on his world of Lankmar that he couldn't really figure out how to publish. And it, indeed, it wouldn't be until TSR came about and D&D had started to become successful that they reached out to him and said, we'd love to do a version of your Lankmar board game, <laughs> which they did in 1976. And so the, the literary connections are just, they're just endless. And I, I think they are inseparable. Um, I think crucially, you know, war games um, have never been as far from stories as some of those people may have thought they were. Well, I thought it was so funny because there's this thing called the Monty Hall campaign where, you know, like one of these um, fanzines, somebody writes in and says, oh, I play a 250th level wizard and somebody else in my party is a 1000th level fighter. And and there's this natural tendency to say, guys, you're, you're doing this completely wrong, you know. But then somebody had this really interesting observation where they say that um, that The Hobbit, that J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, The Hobbit, is basically a Monty Hall campaign, that, that Bilbo is a first-level Hobbit, and almost immediately he gets this awesome magic sword and the most powerful ring in the world. And uh, I thought that was a really funny observation. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the if you look at any fairy tale, right, and ask yourself, you know, people in fairy tales who get great magic and have access to this stuff, you know, did they deserve it? Right. What did they do to this? Did they slay enough orcs like to, <laughs> you know, warrant getting that? And oftentimes they don't. Right. And people did use this to push back on, especially the fundamental experience metric of D and D. And this, this was widely criticized, um, early on by people who felt that, you know, the hunt for power was actually something that, um, impeded role playing. Right. That like really you, you, you know, if you're just concerned about like how much your experience point total is going up like from moment to moment and like that's your incentive for playing that that's you know something that doesn't make you in character it makes you out of character and they there were people who thought that that was a bad thing we should figure out a way to fix it and uh you know fascinatingly some people fixed it by figuring out ways to take things like alignment right um you know the way you're supposed to be good or evil in this game and connect them to the experience system so that you would get more experience for example if you were being good uh if you're supposed to be good and you would if you were being bad your experience returns would be 20% less or something and you you find all these kind of behavior steering mechanisms that are part of that whole whole discussion of how you would design a game to get people to role play yeah no, this is so so interesting, and everyone should definitely check out this book. We're we're pretty much out of time. So, do you have any just um, any final thoughts, or are you working on any any other books along these lines? There's definitely more coming. I don't think anything I'm going to be talking about today. Um, I think the next two things I'm working on are both not as uh, crunchy and academic as this one is, but definitely um, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I hope I'm delivering in elusive shift. Um, some new information and certainly covers a lot of very obscure fanzines, very obscure early small press RPGs. And, you know, so I think there, if you're interested in collecting these things, there's some good bibliographic data and stuff like that in it. Um, it's a lot of fun for me to do. I hope other people find the discussion of this as much fun as I do. And, you know, I, I just really want to say thanks for having me on, David. This, uh, this has been a great conversation. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. And I'll, let me just mention, too, I mean, that I haven't read your earlier book, Playing at the Worlds, and everyone just talks about it as being sort of the definitive book on this subject. And I didn't even realize, but it's like 750 pages long. I think you mentioned at the beginning it's 400,000 yeah. words or something. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I would have had time to read it for this interview, so I'm glad that this one's a little shorter. But um, I definitely i right, will right. have to read that sometime. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, uh, one thing I will say about it is it's it's split up pretty uh, in a modular way by topic, so it's easy to take on like bites of it here and there. And it was really the, especially the middle parts of it were designed to be kind of a more an a la carte than a prefix. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely going to check that out. And so we've been speaking with John Peterson about his new book, The Elusive Shift. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Bye bye. <laughs> And that was our interview. So big thanks again to John Peterson for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.